It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Six thirty, Chad. Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at six on Six Thirty, Chad. Edmonton's home for breaking news on your favorite teams. Now, Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on the voice of your Oilers and Eskimos. Six thirty, Chad. Thanks for tuning in tonight. 806 Inside Sports on 630 Chad. Well, it's been a long time since we've seen the Oilers in the playoffs. Ten seasons ago, ten years to the day when something pretty cool happened. Oh, it's stolen. Pasani is in alone. Shoot, scores! Fernando Pasani, short-handed. The Oilers win it. Three and sudden death overtime. We'll see you in Edmonton on Saturday night. Yeah, you sure did. The Oilers won game six, ultimately would lose game seven to the Carolina Hurricanes. Fernando Pisani, a big hero on that playoff run. This portion of the show presented by Action Furnace, home of the fixed right or its free guarantee. Visit actionfurnace.ca. Pleased to be joined by the man who scored that goal 10 years ago, Fernando Pisani. Fernando, welcome back to Inside Sports. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Doing very well. It's the it's the play you're asked about probably more than any other play in your hockey career, and that might continue. I'm not going to lie to you, but uh, uh, I mean that shorthanded goal against Carolina. Can you can what do you remember about the play actually unfolding and going in and scoring that goal? Yeah, it was uh, it was one of those plays that kind of well, it was a broken play that uh, uh, you know people don't. Remember, but Ethan hit uh, hit the stick of uh, I believe it was uh, Stillman, and it just was hard enough that um, his pass kind of got deflected and slowed down, and I was able to kind of just sit on it and, and just saw it come. And then as soon as I saw the pass kind of just hanging there, I just jumped on it and uh, you know got my stick on it, and then hit me in the chest and came down and. That just uh, laid perfectly on the ice, and uh, I just remember looking up and seemed like I had a, a ton of uh, room to shoot, and I just ended up shooting, and it went top corner. And uh, yeah, it was uh, definitely a very special moment, and something that I obviously will never forget. That whole sequence—I mean, you guys are facing elimination in Game Five, and and then you take a penalty in overtime. So that was—I mean—the worst possible situation you could have been in without them actually scoring. And then it was just crazy. I mean, I remember watching that game and thinking, "Oh my God, this is when they might lose the series." And then all of a sudden, it's a brand new life. I mean, can you? What was the feeling like on the bench and on the ice, knowing, "Okay, we're in dire straits," and now, "Oh my God, we're still alive and we're going home." Yeah, it was uh, a huge swing of emotions, um, you know, being on the penalty kill, 
you just don't want to go out that way. You don't want to be on the ice when, uh, you know, having them potentially score the season ending and, and being done. Um, so we were pretty focused and determined and our PK was pretty, you know, pretty good for, for the most part. So, you know, we definitely had confidence in that, but, uh, it was a huge swing, swing of emotions, uh, you know, gave us a, a new lease on life. And, um, after we scored, it seemed to kind of give us, uh, a little extra jump and a little extra, you know, uh, jump in our steps so we you know and then we come back home and you know we pretty much dominated game six and uh, going into game seven we uh you know we had a lot of you know good excitement uh going into that game as well when you i mean we're in the tv age here right so everything is replayed sometimes hundreds of times especially a goal of the magnitude let me ask you this: What do you remember the goal itself, or now when you envision it, do you just see the replay of yourself scoring in your head? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, uh, you know it's uh, it's one of those things where you you just kind of you you something you'll never forget and always remember. I always uh, it just seemed like it time stood still when that whole play developed and how everything kind of happened. Uh, um, but yeah, like you, you watch it on, uh, on YouTube and my kids watch it now. And, uh, um, you know, it's, it's definitely something that's, uh, part of history and something that you'll always remember. And, uh, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that, uh, we came up on the losing side of things and it's, uh, not very fun living those parts, but, uh, that whole playoff run was a very special time for us as a team and, uh, for me personally. All right, and, and just a, a quick comment on that run because it was such a magical moment for the Oilers and for the city. Um, I mean, look, you guys had a good team. You had Pronger, Rolson was incredible in net. But was there something about that team that, uh, I don't know if it's too corny to use the word bonded or, or, or something like that, but clearly something clicked or something caught fire that maybe uh, um, you didn't have earlier in the season, it seemed. Yeah, you know, the last month of the year, we – you know, we were always in that position fighting for that last spot. And it, it was like we figured out how we had to play. And it was one of those things that just, okay, this is how we have to play. And let's just hit the reset button and continue to do that. And I think going into playoffs, we had that mindset. We were already um, moving in that direction. And I think teams, you know, Detroit was first that year. And they, you know, they were a superpower team. But I don't think they were in playoff mode like we were, and we started our playoffs in, in March. So um, I think that was a huge advantage for us moving forward. And, and we had such good, you know, leadership in the dressing room. You know, we, we had Prongs, we had uh, Jason Smith, Steve Stale, Stephen Morrow. Uh, you know, the list goes on, and those are the guys that kind of pushed us, you know, pushed us all to kind of be better and have high expectations of ourselves. And, um, and that's kind of what was the big difference in, in us is, uh, you know, we had that core leadership that said, okay, let's, let's hold each other accountable and then make it a positive environment for us. Right on. Well, huge goal, Fernando. I guess, uh, tell, you, tell you what, let's book an interview for uh, June 14th, 2026 for the 20th anniversary. How does that sound? <laughs> <laughs> All right, sounds good. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Ethan. Right on. Thanks for joining us. Fernando Pisani checking in tonight. One of the heroes of the Oilers' playoff run in uh, 2006. A legendary goal 
in Oilers history. You often don't have those in series the team wound up losing. And let's face it, as much as the recent history for the Oilers has been poor, to say the least, um, it is a team with a lot of incredible moments. And that goal, in my mind anyway, ranks up with some of the big ones from the 1980s that helped win Stanley Cups or the Marchant goal in 97 that helped the Oilers pull off a massive upset and, and become a little more relevant in the NHL after missing the playoffs for a few years. And I think... A couple things figure into that. It was the Stanley Cup final. There was no one else playing at the time. It was a goal that kept the Oilers alive in the worst possible situation. You're shorthanded in overtime, and you allow a goal, you lose. And I remember watching that game thinking, okay, well, there it is. You know, Carolina power play, home ice, everybody's in a frenzy. They know this, wins it. I, I don't know if the Oilers are going to be able to withstand this. And then Pisani, who just was incredible in that playoff run, gets the steal, perfect shot, and it's over, and the series continues. So the Oilers ultimately didn't. Here's the thing, Kellen. If the Oilers, well, I guess it depends on how, if, if we're talking what ifs here, but hypothetically, if the Oilers go out and would have dominated Game 7 the way they would have dominated Game 6, say, what was it, 4 nothing in Game 6, say they mm. go into Carolina and win 3 or 4-1, but they control the game the whole way. Yeah. Basani's goal probably gets remembered than any goal that would have been scored in Game 7. Right. I mean, if Game 7 would have been, well, it was a close game, but mm. if it was close and the Oilers would have won, maybe that winner oh, yeah. would, have, would have outranked Basani's goal. But, I yeah. mean, shorthanded in overtime to avoid elimination mm. in the Stanley Cup Final. Yep. Uh, I mean, it's it's to me it's it's right to me it's a top five play in the history of the Oilers. It's, it really it, is. It, and it, I know they won. I know there's Gills that won Stanley Cups and beat the Calgary Flames or or won Game Sevens, but that's right up there. It's one of those where were you win moments, right? And being reminded that it's a ten year anniversary of it that first of all makes me feel old because I know exactly where I was the moment that that goal was scored. But you know that's <laughs> another story of another time. But yeah, uh, so. I was watching a game on White Ave at a bar that I don't think exists anymore. It was called the Thirsty Turtle, so maybe our Chad listeners can confirm if that place is still around or whatever. But it was uh, it, it was a little bar that was upstairs over top of where uh, you know Funky Pickle had their little delivery outlet thing on. Oh, well, that bar yeah. always changes yeah. every few years. It seems. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But that that's where I was. I was watching that game. Yep. All right. So glad, glad to have uh, Pisani on the show, and uh, you know, regardless of what happened has or not happened over the last ten years, huge goal in Oilers history, nonetheless, and we're glad to celebrate it tonight. All right, you can text six thirty six thirty seven eight zero four nine six zero zero six three. We'll get to some uh, other news today. We'll update you on the scoreboard, and we got a Legends of the Game segment tonight between eight thirty and nine. Ooh, this guy was tough. I think he still is tough. He's gone from the boxing ring to the courtroom. Former Olympic medalist, former Canadian heavyweight champ, Willie DeWitt will join us as well. Inside Sports on Chet. This is Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on Edmonton Sports Leader, 630 Chet. All right. Thanks for tuning in tonight. Great to have Fernando Pisani on the show. By the way, Fernando Pisani will not be uh, returning to the uh, U of A Golden Hockey U of A Golden Bears hockey team staff. 
He's been an assistant coach for the last couple of seasons. Uh, I believe that you can expect former NHL defenseman, Edmonton native Dan Kordick, to be uh, announced as the new assistant coach uh, probably any day by the uh, U of A Golden Bears ho- hockey team. Dan Kordick, uh, born in Edmonton, big big man when he played, 6'5", about 230. Uh, played in the NHL for the uh, Philadelphia Flyers, former Medicine Hat Tiger as well. In the NHL, 197 games, 12 points, 584 penalty minutes. 12 points, 584 penalty minutes. Well, his role is clearly defined out there. He it wasn't was a goal scorer, that's was for sure. Also, a feared, <laughs> uh, a feared fighter in the Western Hockey League as well. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, changes to the uh, Golden Bears staff. Fernando just, I think, looking into some other opportunities, so he's not going to be back with the Golden Bears. I think he did enjoy doing that. I know at first he was kind of doing it just at home games, practices mm. and home games, and he got more yeah. involved as, as, uh, as time went on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's, uh, I think he's going to look at doing some other stuff. Cool. So Serge Lajoie f- uh, finding a former NHLer, Dan Kordick, to, mm-hmm. uh, to join his staff. So uh, look for the U of A to make that official in the very near future. Inside Sports on 630, Chad, you can text 630-630. Darcy says, I think the Thirsty Turtle is now called the Buckingham. Yes, that's what I was trying to awesome. think of. Awesome. Thank you. Doesn't yeah. it have an Australian theme? I'm not sure. Australian flag I, on the sign. I'll be I honest I, with you. I haven't stepped foot in the place since that night ten years ago. So. I went there for uh, somebody's uh, goodbye party. Okay. That I think was at the Buckingham. Ah, okay. All right. Nevin says uh, we were at the Turtle too that night. Mm-hmm. It was had packed. a bunch of California co-workers up for a project. They could not believe the energy of White Ave. We still often refer to it as the run, some of the best times they ever had. That is from Nevin. Nevin, mm-hmm. thanks for texting. It was packed, and it wasn't the only establishment that was packed. Like Every establishment on White Ave was packed. People you know, tend to watch out. hockey in large groups in exactly. the playoffs. Yep. That's, been my op- that's the one thing I've learned in my life. <laughs> yep. The one and only thing. For sure. Nothing else. <laughs> uh, Rocket says Dan Kordick wasn't there for his good looks, LOL. I assume he's talking about, he just put he, but I was just talking about Dan Kordick, so I don't think he was talking about Pisani. Uh, Rocket also says, what do you think of the Oilers trading down with uh, Phoenix, Montreal, or Buffalo, which would still give them a top 10 pick minus a current player to get a ready-made top two defenseman? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Any any defenseman that is drafted will not be ready-made. He'll be a top two defenseman in Hopefully a short period of time. He will not be a top two defenseman this year. I don't think we're getting any Aaron Ekblads in 7, 8, 9, 10, or 11. But you could get a pretty good player. Look, I don't know. As it goes on here, I don't think the Oilers are going to trade down. And we were talking expansion to Las Vegas earlier in the show. And uh, I think that the expansion draft is, is part of that. Because you will not have to protect this player, right? Guys with two years or less of pro will not have to be protected. So it adds a little bit of value to that fourth overall pick. Hey, I thought this was interesting. Uh, interesting. Ken Hitchcock, speaking of coaches from Edmonton, one more year with the St. Louis Blues. He was on Oilers Now earlier today with Bob Stoffer. Mark Spector was sitting in as well. And uh, they asked Hitch, okay, Pittsburgh won with, uh, with more speed as opposed to maybe that's that size grinding game. And they asked Hitch, does that change the perception of how you win in the league? Well, I think you can win a number of ways, but I think what's showing now is that your depth have to be players. So, for instance, if you just look at game, 
if you look at game uh, six in uh, in San Jose, every player that played on the fourth line on Pittsburgh played a top nine role in the third period when the game was on the line. That's what's changed. Your fourth line has to be a third line, and your third pair of defensemen have to be able to play as a second pair during certain games. And that's the depth that has to be there. I don't think it's speed or this. You've got to have – you can't have any defined role players and win anymore because we're using younger players to score. Um, you look at Pittsburgh, so they've got, they've got Russ, they've got Sheary, they've got those type of guys up the lineup. But when the game's on the line, here comes Colin, here comes Kunako, here comes those type of players. They're now playing top nine minutes. That's what you have to have on your team. You've got to have the ability to change your roster on the fly during the game and feel comfortable. So those seven, six, seven, eight-minute players uh, or that third-pair defenseman that plays 10 minutes, it doesn't work anymore then. So what Ken Hitchcock is saying is you need really good players to win the Stanley Cup. But, I mean, seriously, I mean, he's, he's talking about depth. And I guess ultimately it doesn't matter if those players are fast, big, skilled, or whatever. The more players you have who are really good or excellent at a skill, the better you're going to be. And, again, the problem with the Oilers is that it, they have had players slotted in the lineup. I mean, Hitchcock basically said you got to have two third lines. Well, this year the Oilers kind of had two fourth lines. They didn't really have a true third line. A little more hockey talk, a little more Eskimos updates. And former Canadian heavyweight champion Willie DeWitt in the final half hour. So. Your home for breaking news and expert opinion. Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on 630 Chad. Good to have you along for the ride. The Toronto Blue Jays won this afternoon 11-3 over the Philadelphia Phillies. Josh Donaldson, three for four. He drove in five. He had a grand slam. Edwin Encarnacion also went deep his 16th of the season. Your scoreboard is presented by Crystal Glass. For all your glass needs, you can call 310-GLASS today. Hey, uh, remember last night we were talking about uh, some of the violence at the uh, Euro 2016 tournament, the warnings for the for Russia and uh, England. We got an update here on uh, what uh, some stuff happening to uh, Russian supporters. French authorities have begun deporting 29 Russian soccer fans. They accuse of being involved in the fighting in Marseille. The men were stopped by police on a bus in southern France. A standoff ensued after the Russian fans refused to get off. Alexander Spriggan, an official on the bus, has said that no one deported was involved in the Marseille violence. Russia has also just been fined 150,000 euro and given a suspended disqualification over the fighting. If it happens again, the country could be out of the tournament. Patrick Rievel, ABC News, Moscow. All right, and at that tournament today, Portugal and Iceland tying 1-1. I guess Cristiano Ronaldo had some kind of sore loser comments for uh, Iceland. I saw those earlier, yeah. Like, he basically said they're not good enough to win the tournament. Yeah. Which, I mean, they probably aren't. The, they're probably he, one of the underdogs. But, I mean, they just tied you, so why bother saying he, that? He also said that they should enjoy it because that's their probably going to be their lone high point of the tournament, right? Hey, so. could be. Yeah. Could be. But, hey, he, he should know about losing to a, a, an upstart team at this tournament. Greece upended Portugal in 2004. Exactly. Beat them in the opening game yep. and then beat them in the final. Mm-hmm. I got uh, I got a Portuguese buddy who's still 
Well, oh, Greece wasn't yeah. that good. Well, Greece wasn't that good. You know what? They were good enough for three weeks to win the tournament. Yeah. So whatever. Then they beat Portugal twice that year. Mm-hmm. Hungary over Austria, 2-0. The Anaheim Ducks named Randy Carlisle their new head coach. They also announced Nate Thompson, ruptured Achilles. Those are ugly injuries. He's going to be out, well, they, they say until the trade deadline, so we're talking late February at least. Uh, the Eskimos practiced today, not happy with the offense. And, of course, if you missed it yesterday, John Ojo, excellent defensive back for the green and gold. He is out for the season. He ruptured his Achilles in practice yesterday. Inside Sports presents Legends of the Game. Well, this is going to be great. I'm pleased to welcome to Inside Sports former Canadian heavyweight boxing champion, an Olympic medalist, and a guy who has achieved great heights in his career since leaving the ring as well. It is Willie DeWitt. Willie, welcome to Inside Sports. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, Reed. Thanks for having me. Well, it's 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 great to have you on the show. Uh, you know, as a, as a middle-aged man, it's always fun for me to uh, <laughs> to talk to guys who are some of my first memories of, of being a sports fan. I mean, do you, do you get that a lot? Do you get do you get recognized, get remembered a lot, or how would you describe your your sporting relationship with fans nowadays? Yeah, I, I get recognized a lot by older people uh, like me. So <laughs> the young people really don't have a clue who I am anymore. So. Well, I'm glad to introduce uh, that generation to you because you had an awesome career. Let's go back. Uh, I mean, how did boxing um, get to be the prime sport for you? Because weren't you doing some, some football and some other sports before you got into boxing? Yeah, as a young kid, I grew up playing hockey and, and football and, and, and school sports, uh, of course. And, and uh, you know, when I got to be about 17, I, I kind of was got a little tired of the, the team sport aspect of it and, and, and getting let down by people who didn't want to put the effort in that I did. And so I, I, I think every kid wants to be able to take care of themselves a little bit, so I wanted to learn how to fight, learn how to box, and, and uh, got started at a local place that really wasn't a boxing gym. It was just a fitness place in Grand Prairie. Uh, obviously, there wasn't a lot of fighters up there. Uh, ran into a guy by the name of Harry Snatic, who became my trainer, and and we kind of started from there and, and went uh, went a long ways. Well, here's a question I ask all boxers that I interview, Willie. And obviously, you know, you, when you're boxing, you you want to hit the other person and and land as many blows as as you can. But no matter how good you are, you're going to get punched sometimes. <laughs> what was the appeal or your willingness to uh, accept the damage that the sport can bring? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think I think in order to be to be proficient at boxing, you're you're definitely going to get hit, and it can't bother you. You just don't feel that kind of pain like most people most people do when they get hit in the eyes or the head or the nose. But you can you can always tell a fighter, uh, you know, by their nose. Guys that uh, don't have uh, have a perfect noses usually haven't been doing too much fighting. Okay, um, obviously you uh, you became pretty good. You you won a gold in the uh, Commonwealth Games in '82. You got silver in 1984 in Los Angeles. I certainly remember that. But but at that point, you know, as, as you were getting to those heights, when did it click for you where you're like, okay, I'm like a I'm good. Like I can go somewhere with this. Did you have that moment, or was it just sort of a gradual build? Yeah, you know, I always, I always thought a person. I think it was taught by my parents that you could achieve anything you wanted to if you were willing to put enough effort into it and 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 had had some basic skills. So I always thought I could do as well as anybody as long as I had the opportunity to get the right training and 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 I could put the right effort into it. So uh, right from the start, I always always kind of dreamt fairly big and thought I could beat most people. 
so so the, and that continued on and and the more I fought and the more I won uh, I think that just uh, got reinforced uh, I got to ask you about the 84 Olympics man Willie I-, I wanted you to get that gold medal so bad man <laughs> I mean <laughs> well me too that was that, that is that, is that uh, is that still a tough one for you when you think about it or how do you look back Yeah it is it is a tough thing I mean um you look back at it now, it's still a pretty nice accomplishment to even get to the Olympics and to win a silver medal is a fairly good accomplishment. But like I remember my my wife a uh, number of years going, uh, you know, you should get a tattoo. Like, I don't have any tattoos, but somehow tattoos came up. And she said, you should put, like, Olympic rings on your, on your arm or something like that. And I said, honey, what you don't understand is the Olympics is not a good memory for me. It's a bad memory. So, and I think that's... That's what it's always been for me. I think I, I think I won that fight, and and I sure think I could have done a lot better, and and left uh, no doubt at all, no no doubt in anyone's mind that I would that I won that fight. Yeah, well, I you know I I was ten, and I remember certainly you and Sean O'Sullivan, and and some of the talk about the judging at the time, and and not to to dredge up that that specific fight necessarily, but was that um, was that ever tough for you? Because especially at the amateur level, the fights aren't as long, so maybe they're in the hands of judges more often. Um, I mean, how did you deal with the, the judging aspect of it and knowing that sometimes it's left in the hands of, of people that weren't in the ring with you? Yeah, it's just the way it is. It's it's part of life. There's judges in, in a lot of sports, figure skating, things like that. So you have to uh, you have to uh, rely on that and rely on on their uh, their knowledge. And sometimes you you wonder what they were watching. But uh, uh, you know, it was a situation that I thought I won the fight. It wasn't overwhelming. I think I I could have fought much better and and made it an overwhelming decision, but I still thought I won the fight. Yeah, Willie DeWitt joining us inside sports on 6.30. Chad, we're uh, looking back on his boxing career, and we'll also get into uh, what he's up to now. But you turned pro. You uh, you know, you had a great run. You got that uh, Canadian title shot. And it, it's funny, Willie, a couple months ago, I did a, a documentary about Rexall Place, formerly Northlands Coliseum, and Rod Proudfoot, was on the show. Who uh, he was your manager, right? And he helped get that fight against Lacusta going. Yeah, exactly. He was he's managing uh, my career, and then did a lot of the promotions of the fights, and, and pretty much uh, handled all the promotions when it came to, to to promoting fights in Canada here. Yeah. So, uh, geez, we're right on the day, aren't we? June fourteenth, nineteen eighty six. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, 30 years ago, Ken. That, that, Willie, that was a big deal. It, I mean, and, and maybe, again, that younger generation, it might be hard for them to comprehend, but that had genuine hype and excitement around it. What do you remember about fighting Ken for the belt? Well, it did, and it was it was a, back in a time when boxing was much more popular than it is now. We didn't have MMA and things like that back then. Uh, so people that like combat sports mostly watch boxing. And, and in Canada, with Sean and I going to the Olympics and winning world championships in the amateurs and then turning pro, uh, kind of the media followed us throughout those stages of our career, which, you know, was very important. I mean, that's part of the problem nowadays is there's no, uh, when it comes to boxing anyway, there's no following of amateur fighters in the media and that kind of thing. So they don't really build up a, a following when they go into the pros. Uh, but this was a fo- you know a following that went on for for five six years uh, where people were kind of following your moves. So there was a lot of a lot of hype going on. People enjoyed going to the fights and and uh, you know winning the uh, Canadian title was uh, was a big thing back then. Uh, so it was pretty exciting stuff. Uh, your only loss as a pro was against B- Bert Cooper. That was in Regina. I mean you were lucky to get in fight uh, to fight in Canada and a lot. 
You fought Lacusta again. Uh, you beat Tony Morrison to retain the Kevin Canadian heavyweight title. Um, your last fight was in Edmonton. You beat Henry Tillman, who's, who was a name at the time as well. That was back in Edmonton. But how did you know at that time um, you, you were done? Did you, I mean, were you ready to step away? Was it kind of, um, uh, yeah, I don't know, was there outside pressure? Well, how did you know that was the end at the time? Yeah, you know, for me it was, uh, I just knew it down deep somewhere within me. I, I can't really explain that. It was just, I can remember coming back from training one day and just thinking, you know what, I'm not improving uh, the way I want to here. I'm kind of stagnant stagnant as far as, uh, as my development's concerned. And, uh, you know, it was just it was just time to retire and time to move on to something else. And, and uh, I'd always wanted to make sure that I didn't leave it too long uh, and regret that. So for me, it just was an inner thing that just said, that's enough. And, and I never, uh, never changed my mind from that. There were some times when you kind of think maybe I, I quit a little too early, but um, in the end, probably better too early than too late. Do you ever, do you, do, here's the question, do you still box or spar or do anything recreational with the sport? <laughs> well, <laughs> I still hit the bag. <laughs> the bag doesn't hit back, so that's, <laughs> that's not bad. But uh, I haven't sparred in probably five, six years with anyone, and, and I don't know that that's a recreational sport. I think most people can figure out that getting hit in the head is not really great <laughs> for you. Um, but hitting the bag's pretty good. <laughs> Willie DeWitt joining us, former Canadian heavyweight boxing champion. All right, so we we got to get into this uh, transition and, and the, I guess the second chapter of your adult life, which has been a pretty successful one as well. How do you go from uh, boxing into into the into the courtroom? Tell me about getting the law degree and becoming a, a lawyer. This is fascinating. Well, if I was, you know, when I was fighting, if someone had told me that I was going to become a lawyer, I'd, I'd laugh them, laughed right at them. Would have never thought that would have happened. But when I was fighting, I I developed a friendship with uh, a court of appeal judge, uh, Milt Heritance, and uh, he was a uh, he had he had fought previously in, in university and things like that. And he was one of the best criminal lawyers in, in Canada before becoming a judge on the court of appeal of Alberta. And he had always uh, been on me to to get an education and to. Uh, to get a law degree, and, and when I retired from the ring, did a few things, um, and then went to see him, and, and uh, he, he convinced me that, uh, you know, they can never take your education away from you, and that would be a good thing to get, even if you didn't ever practice law. So I, I went back to, I had to go back to school right from the start and, uh, and go to university, and I did all that and became a lawyer, and, and you know, it's been a it's been a good thing for me. Uh, I've been fairly successful at it, and, and uh, I, I think it was obviously the right move. Uh, are you are you doing criminal law now? That's correct. Yeah. So let me ask you this: Is, is there um, is there enough to it that it still satisfies your competitive instincts? You know, when you're actually in the courtroom, you know. Well, you know, that's it's funny you you say it that way because there are some analogies between uh, between fighting in in the ring and fighting uh, in the courtroom, and and I think. Uh, uh, I've always said there's nothing like nothing like the feeling of dropping a guy with a good left hook. But if you if you're able to give a good cross examination, that's a pretty good feeling also. And so there's a lot of strategy that goes on. Obviously, it's not a physical thing when you're in court; it's a mental thing. Uh, but but there are some analogies like uh, the preparation and then and then uh, the time when you go to court and you have to perform. And it's uh, it it does kind of uh, allow you to deal with your competitive juices. All right. Well, I mean, that's that's an incredible trajectory for uh, for your career. Uh, should ask you, Willie, since we got you on the line here. Uh, obviously, the the sporting world, the boxing world, lost an icon about a week and a half ago with uh, Muhammad Ali passing away. I don't know if you ever if you ever met him, but I I can't believe being involved in your sport, especially at the time you were growing up, and not being 
influenced by him in, in some way. Yeah, I, I, I did get a chance to meet Ali and actually talk to him on the phone one time. And, and I remember the first time that I saw him in person was uh, in Madison Square Garden in 1982. It, it was uh, Duran's fight for the junior middleweight title in Madison Square Garden. And, and uh, that place was, was uh, really electric that night. And Ali came in just before the main event, went into the ring, and the place just kind of erupted. And, and you could really feel the charisma that this guy had and and the electricity that he brought to to a situation just getting into the ring and and not even fighting i can't imagine what it would have been like uh, one of his fights early on in his career when he was this prime but uh i I never forgot i was with uh, tommy brooks at the time we turned each other and he says to me he says can you feel that and i said yeah it's unbelievable isn't it and of course i went on uh, the fight with duran went on that night and it was a tremendous fight also but that was the first time that i'd ever seen him live and this the uh the second thing I remember was that uh, he had uh, he had uh, called me on the phone one day, and and uh, I was at I was staying at my trainer's place, and someone had said uh, Willie, someone on the phone here, and I said, well, who is it? And I said Muhammad Ali, and I said, yeah, right, <laughs> and uh, it was him, and we talked about some things for a bit. And uh, then the next time I met him was at the Olympics uh, out in the parking lot of the sports arena in Los Angeles before the finals. And uh, he, he, we pulled up, parked our vehicle, and he pulled up a couple of vehicles down. And then, of course, uh, uh, we recognized him, went over and talked to him for a bit. So, yeah, it was, he was just such, a, such an icon, such a, uh, such a great person inside and outside the ring. Uh, everyone was influenced by Ali. Yeah. Well, Willie, I'm sure you influenced a lot of people during the height of your career as well, and uh, thanks for sharing what you're up to now because obviously you've been incredibly successful uh, going into law. I mean, over 20 years of doing that, so that is some awesome stuff. Thanks for joining us tonight on Inside Sports. I hope we can catch up again. Really appreciate your time. All right, Reed, anytime. Take care. That is Willie DeWitt checking in tonight, our Legends of the Game segment here on Inside Sports on 630 Ched. Commonwealth Games gold, Olympic silver. Most of us would love to have it, as he said in that interview. For him, it was a disappointment, and he's gone on to a successful law career. Obviously grew up in uh, Grand Prairie, fought a lot in Edmonton, and currently based in Calgary. Great Alberta success story, former boxer Willie DeWitt. You can text 630-630. It is 849. Back with your quarterback, Mike Riley, when we return. Hey, this is Jordan Everly from your Edmonton Oilers. You're listening to Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on Oilers Radio 630 Chet. Great to have Willie DeWitt on the show. Thanks to those of you texting in who enjoyed that interview. Really appreciate it. Willie DeWitt, Fernando Pisani was on a little bit earlier. If you want the preseason schedule for the current edition of the Edmonton Oilers, go to 630Ched.com. You can go to the Oilers page. First Oilers game at Rogers Place, Monday, September 26th. Split squad exhibition action against the Calgary Flames. The Eskimos getting ready for a preseason game on Saturday against the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. The offense did not look ready today. Sloppy performance by the O. Here's quarterback Mike Riley. These days happen for sure, especially during training camp. You know, you're into the third week. You've been practicing every day but the reality is today offensively it wasn't good enough you know we uh, we got a long way to go and hopefully everybody understands that after today 
how do you uh, how do you get it on track? Well, we watch the tape, and everybody just has to be honest with themselves and, and figure out you know what they could do better to help this team win because it's not one single person; it's the whole group, and it starts at the top with the quarterback, obviously. So I got to do the same thing. I got to look at the tape and say, you know, what did I not do well enough? And there's going to be plenty of things, I'm sure, uh, but every single person that stepped on the field today has to do the same thing, and that's the only way we're going to change it. Is today the exception more than the rule? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think we've had a good camp so far. You know, we've had again a couple of injuries here or there, but those happen during the season and you can't use that as an excuse. We know that historically on this football team we've had to fight through that before so um, you know the next man up has to step in and be ready and the guys have done a, a nice job you know most of the time and this was just one of a couple of days where it, it wasn't nearly good enough you know, if you're going to play professional football, it's got to be better than it was today. That is Mike Riley. His dad was on the program last night, of course. Good interview with Pat. You can get any interview uh, you missed on this show by going to the Inside Sports page on 630Ched.com. You can also sign up for the podcast. This was a good one. You heard from Willie DeWitt, Fernando Pisani, the father-son duo of Jason and Kale Clegg. Where will Kale be drafted next week? Good defenseman for the Brandon Wheat Kings. Dave Campbell was on the show. Brian Blessing out of Las Vegas. They will uh, formally be announced as an expansion team for the NHL next Wednesday. And Kelly Rudy with his final appearance of the season as well. Tomorrow, the Father's Day theme continues with Oilers center Mark Letestu and his dad. We'll also have a little bit on the U.S. Open. That starts Thursday in Oakmont in Pennsylvania. The producer of the show is Dave Campbell. The studio producer this evening is Kellen Kennedy. By the way, the Eskimos broadcast coming up on Saturday, 12.30 pregame show on Chad. 2 o'clock for the kickoff against our beloved opponents, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. My name is Reed Wilkins. Thanks to everybody who called and texted. Always a pleasure to bring you this show. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Six thirty, Chad. Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins, weekdays at six on Six Thirty, Chad.